Welcome to today's episode of The Growth Zone. I am Christian Bartsch. What is the core benefit of listening to this show? Business leaders in corporate and privately held companies gain insights into trends and strategies that provide them with a competitive advantage in the marketplace. Each episode focuses on an area such as marketing, sales, innovation or funding that is absolutely critical to the growth of companies, whether they are startups or corporate global players, where management needs to juggle the challenges of market entry or knowing how to navigate the uncertainties of disruptive developments. Mindfeeding is where clarity evolves and helps solving organizational challenges. For those who listen to the entire episode, I have a special surprise gift. I am working on some great guests that are industry leaders in management, innovation and marketing. Let's get started on today's episode. Today I'm with Sean, who is based in Oregon. I think it's Oregon City. Is that right, Sean? Yeah, that's correct. Oregon City, Oregon. Great. And our topic for today is going to be how to use market research in the B2B area to be laser-focused on solving the relevant problems of their niche market. Before we go deep into our topic today, Sean, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, please? Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, I'm based in Oregon City, Oregon, which is literally where the Oregon Trail ended. So for U.S. listeners, you probably know what that is. But for international listeners, it was the when we were kind of growing westward as a, com as a country, um, mm -hmm. there was kind of a pioneer wagon trails like the ones you might have seen photos of that actually went out to the West and Oregon city was one of the terminal places where those trails ended. Um, and so, uh, I've been a business owner for 21 years now. Uh, I've had two services firms. Um, the first one lasted six to seven years and then I sold it. And, uh, the second one started in 2006 and I continue to own that business. That's Cascade Insights. And, and in full disclosure, I co-own it, equally co-own it with another guy named Scott Swigert. He was also a business partner of mine in the first business. Mm -hmm. And um, we do uh, B2B market research for B2B technology companies. Mm -hmm. And I just got a really long history doing market research on the B2B side um, specifically. And I'm happy to chat about that. Awesome. So... Um Looking at our topic about market research, and as you said, you're very focused on the B2B area, which is uh, not that typical. Many research companies focus on B2C, how to get products and services to consumers. But in a B2B area, it's a different game, as far as I understand. And um, how do companies have to go about market research? How does it help them and so on in a B2B area? Well, well, first, just it, to answer the back half of that question, I guess, first, like like how it mm -hmm. helps them is, um, I think, best summarized in, in at least what we, we've sensed over the years from, you know, as people come to us, you either do market research for pain or opportunity. And I would say 80% of the time you do it for pain. 
Um, and that pain might be you've got a competitor that's doing a better job serving customers than you. You've got a competitor who launched a new product and you fear that may lead to some market dominance or growth for them. Uh, you have a competitor who has um, basically kind of expanded through acquisition or moved into a new region, right? Um, mm -hmm. Or the pain might be self-inflicted. Maybe you launched a poor product or a brand new release or something like that, or your sales team isn't really all that great. Uh, and maybe your product is, but your sales team's not doing a good job engaging or your post-sales support is really bad. So anything like that could be pain that you want to investigate to uh, eradicate at some point. Then on the opportunity side, uh, while we get asked for it less, um, and I think that's only just because pain is more pressing, um, it, it's equally valuable. Like it, you, you could even argue that it's more valuable because the ROI on it is better. So the, on the opportunity side, it's things like um, you're going to do a research study because you want to expand into a new geography. You want to move into Europe and you predominantly sold in the U.S. You will have a new product that you would like to launch, but you want to make sure you've got really good market fit. You have a product that's in market, but you're not sure if you're really targeting the right ICP, the right ideal customer profile. Or, you know, maybe you feel that there are other buyer personas that you could equally serve or engage more effectively as part of the B2B sales cycle, and that's going to lead to more opportunity for you. So if you think about why people do it, it's pain or opportunity. And if you have any of those problems, one of the best tests you can run to see if you should do market research is when you're having conversations about that pain or opportunity are all of the perspectives that are being shared inside your company based on kind of internal data or insights such that when you go around the room, everybody says, well, when I talked to a customer the other day, or when I looked at our analytics or my history with this company says, when that happens for long enough, there's a myopia that sets in that's very hard to break. And the only real way to break it is to get kind of an injection of external perspective. And that's what research brings. Yes, absolutely. And that's where you can start thinking that uh, the world is uh, rectangular when it's actually a, a ball. And then people just get confused because they have, uh, they have the wrong perspective on reality and start creating their own kind of virtual reality that doesn't fit with those who are supposed to spend money with them and use their products and services. So uh, how can they then um, work out that, or let's, let's say in a different way, how can they really build in a market research that's actually going to deliver useful information that they can really make a decision upon instead of just being myoptic in the, in the vision of their own? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Clients, um, particularly the more senior roles in a client will tend to have very strong immediate uh, biases is really the only word for the methodology. And, and mm. in B2B, what happens a lot of times it's quantitative. So they'll start saying, well, we need to run a survey and we need to do this quant survey. And I would say that the methodology is, is the worst place to start. The, mm. the place where you start is what we tend to refer to as right people, right questions. So, Do you have the right people that you're going to target for the study? And that sounds so elemental. Like, of course, we'd go do that. But what you find a lot of times is that, again, those internal perspectives and biases creep in. So people say, well, we've always sold to such and such segment, uh, a certain type of persona, a certain type of role, a certain type of title. 
with a certain type of problem. Let's go research those people. And, and what you sometimes need to do is step aside of that. Um, maybe you need to interview competitor customers. Maybe you need to interview people who are agnostic customers who haven't decided on you or the competitor, but have the problem that you are targeting. And so that, that initial, who am I going to target for the study and why am I targeting them is a really, really important step not to speed through. And you have to have somebody who can kind of help coach you through that thought process a little bit. On the right question side, it's the same problem. Although I'd have to say this is not to put a negative light on it, but it, it, it's unfortunately true. A lot of times when we share a discussion guide, which is what might be used for qualitative research, or let's say a draft of a survey instrument, clients will tend to fill it with questions that sometimes you can tell are designed to confirm their biases or internal opinions. And what happens then is maybe you get a research study that simply just confirms your bias, but isn't really an accurate reflection of what's happening out in the world. I mean, the way you design a question, as we have seen for anyone who's watched any kind of interaction through politics or government or, you know, even regular TV, you, you can design a question such that the answer that comes back is not that insightful uh, or only just confirms your bias. And so you really have to have a set of questions that are really good and probing. So that's where we get right people, right questions. And once you have that figured out, well, now you can talk about what methodology to run. And that leads you to one other problem I'll, I'll mention briefly. And if you want me to dig into it a little more, I can, is that in B2B versus B2C, there's, there's a huge initial problem that you run into with methodology that you have to pay attention to. And it's that it, you, you can't, unfortunately, run as many quant surveys as you'd like in B2B. Everybody likes statistics. Everybody likes statistical validity. Everybody likes to see a survey that says 500 people said this, right? But the problem is a piece of math that people who don't do research aren't quite as familiar with. Um, it's not all that atypical to assume that with a quantitative survey instrument, you might only get 1%, maybe a little more, maybe a little less of people to respond to the survey instrument. So what that means is if you want to go get 500 people to respond to it, right, hmm. you're going to need a, a, a huge number of actual potential participants, right? to be part of that study. And, and the problem with that is that in some audiences and in some segments, there aren't that many people. There just aren't, right? I mean, if you do the math on, you know, how many respondents I need to basically get, you know, a, a, a hundred respondents, right? That's a lot, a lot of people. And so a company might say, well, I don't even have that many customers, Right. You know, so if you want an N of 100 respondents, that's 10,000 people that have to go in, right? So you end up with um, a, an interesting kind of math problem that you have to deal with. And so then that leads you to see, are there other research methodologies? And it's why in B2B, there's a slightly heavier reliance on the discovery methodologies like in-depth interviews and focus groups. Now, those have their own justification in their own right. They're not just used when you can't address a larger population. Um, hmm. but I'd say that's the biggest problem people have. Maybe if they've been in a B2C role and they transition to a B2B one, you know, they're used to working for a major like drink manufacturer, like a Pepsi or a Coca-Cola, where they can send out surveys to millions of people conceivably. Um, 
in B2B, you might have a very well-functioning company that the total addressable market in terms of the number of companies they can serve might only be 10,000 organizations, right? So that takes you back to the math problem of when you can do quant. So that's that's a huge um, hurdle to get over in B2B of, you know, when can you meaningfully do quant? And if you can't, you know, what other research methodologies can you do in lieu of it? Exactly, because when you think of uh, there are many kind of business in B2B can be anything from from a, a company that sells trucks or to a company that sells, let's say, uh, flight simulators for, for military aircraft and so on. That's, that's a limit of uh, who you can ask there, what they really oh, want. Right, right. We, yeah. Yeah, exactly. we, we did a study once for, um, and I, I won't say what the study was about because mm -hmm. then I can name the client, but, yeah. but GoGo... Um, that provides a lot of the in-flight Wi-Fi in the United States, you know, when you're on an mm -hmm. aircraft. And I think they have, they have international presence too. I shouldn't just say in the States, but they, um, you know, we've done research for them. And, and if you think about a GoGo's customers, right, broadly mm -hmm. speaking, again, just broadly speaking, they have a variety of offerings. But if you just think of in-flight Wi-Fi, well, there's only so many major commercial airlines in the world, right? So, you're not going to find 20,000 major commercial airlines circling the globe. So if you're going to do certain types of research for an organization like that, you're going to have to really think about the methodology based on kind of that sample size. And, and that's, a, that's a super important thing to do. But like I said, qualitative research can bring uh, amazing insights in and of itself. Uh, and it's a, it's a valid tool in, in times, even when you have a huge population you can address. But that's a, that's a different topic. Exactly. And, and how would you then actually, what do you think is the best approach then in that kind of situation, especially when you have that limited size of, of people who you can actually ask um, what's maybe missing in the market? Because on the, on the other hand, of course, there might be as well people who are not buyers, who haven't got at the moment a need for this kind of product and service, but there might be some kind of aspect in the existing or potential business opportunities where they can say okay one might buy the product if it has this and this things that at the moment isn't satisfied by the existing products yeah yeah well like i said i mean there there's mm. methods that you can use to investigate a market that's fairly tight you know um, mm. focus groups are one in-depth interviews are another one longitudinal studies are another one but probably in b2b one of the most common things you'll see is in-depth in-depth interviews. Um, there are even things called expert networks um, that mm -hmm. have their pros and cons that maybe even some listeners have participated in because you can you can kind of sign up to be part of these, mm -hmm. and you know you basically kind of schedule an hour long chat with an industry expert or someone with a particular role, and they can kind of walk you through, you know, do they feel there's a need for this solution? You know, what if they did buy the solution, you know, how would they feel that would go inside their organization? What other um, things would that tool have to integrate with? What are some of the cost factors that would go into their decision-making? What does the buying committee look like around a decision like that? And then obviously, sometimes they might say, I don't really have a need for that. Or we have a bespoke solution and it's good enough. I don't have any idea why I would pay somebody to solve that problem for us. And that can be, unfortunately, sometimes some of the more demoralizing stuff that comes back from research is, a population saying, I don't have a problem. I don't need anything. Right. And, uh, and, and, you know, over time, maybe that perception changes, but, but that is certainly a legitimate point of research. And that might be another interesting thing to mention here briefly. Like if you commission research, you have to be willing to hear bad news. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
and, and, and I can tell you honestly, organizations aren't always uh, psychologically prepared for that. Uh, we, they, they're just they're just not. Uh, we see it all the time when we do research readouts. Uh, it's almost like telling a kid he got an F and he was a straight A student. He spends the first five minutes complaining about the fact that he will no longer be a straight A student as opposed to dealing with the reality that they got an F. And, and it's, yeah. a, it's a fascinating dynamic that we deal with pretty much every time we deliver a readout that has bad news. Now, and, and there's ways to do that, but that it's, a, it's something that I would say, if you're going to commission research, tell your vendor that they can deliver bad news uh, and, and that you really want to hear it if that's really what the market's saying. Yeah, that's true, because when you think of it as well, um, sometimes it might even be good news, on the other hand, because it means maybe there's uh, not the need at the moment. Just look, for instance, at uh, taxis, for instance. Uh, before, someone who wanted to become a taxi driver, they had to learn the entire city, know which road is where, and so on, and so on. And there were questions, very difficult questions. And nowadays, when you take a taxi anywhere in the world, regular taxis, They use the navigation system either on a phone or it's built already into the car and they're not bothering. And, and some countries are even doing away with all these exams because they say it's silly because by the time the guy has memorized it, there's a new road. The road has been cut, has changed and so on. The directions have changed. It's faster, more efficient, more environmentally friendly. Just put the stuff into the navigation system and tell you where to drive. <laughs> Yeah. Right. You know, no, I agree with you. I mean, yeah. as long as Google Maps doesn't lead us into the ocean, which it's known yeah. to do occasionally, right? But yeah. like that's an edge case. That doesn't happen that often. But like uh, especially in urban areas, their their maps are usually really, really good. Like, having lived in Oregon and and mm -hmm. one of my hobbies is fishing and camping and getting out there. Yeah. I, I can tell you that as most people have experienced a lot of those mapping programs, the more you get away from an urban center occasionally they're not a hundred percent accurate, you know, and so you have to be a little careful about what they're saying, but, but increasingly they're, they're spot on, like you said, yeah. and, and, and yeah, and, and not having to invest in something is, is a positive, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that if you're no reason to try to sell something that nobody wants. And the flip side is there's no reason to guess at what they want and spend a year kind of flailing around in the market, trying to figure out what, they want to hear from you and how they want you to package your solution and all of those kinds of things. So that's a, that, you know, there's plenty of positives out of research for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when you think it, once you've done the research and you've got the insights for them, how can then then really use that to uh, further improve it? Because then, okay, you, let's say you've had a market research, you've come back, you've got all the feedback and you know, okay, these and these things people don't really want, but they want this and this stuff. And then maybe they'll start developing, build, building their business plan and, and trying to, let's say, uh, work on the persona, on the buyer persona. But then, of course, um, it's still quite, maybe quite vague. Uh, how do you then go about to help them to really laser focus it to get it drilled down to what at the moment is really the best fit? Because maybe you've got three potential products or groups where they say, yeah, we would buy, but you can't do all three at the beginning, maybe. Yeah, well, some of that is honestly just, uh, I mean, I, I I hate to kind of fall back to this, but a lot of that is the skill of the researcher and and, and specifically the fact that they, they hang out in a particular context. 
I realize I'm about to say next might be a little bit advertorial, but it's but it's something I believed in for 21 years. So I don't I don't really know how that can be that advertorial. But like <laughs> is um, context trumps everything. Yeah. Um, and and be, the reason we pick to serve only B two B technology clients, um, and not do surveys for let's say pharma companies talking to you know you know patients. Yeah, or hospitals or whatever. Yeah, or yeah. hospitals or whatever, right? I, I, yeah, I didn't say hospitals because that is a little bit of a B two B thing, like a pharma company yeah. talking to hospital. But, but even there, we don't, we don't do that um, because to be really effective at research, you have this moment in the interview or while you're designing the survey instrument, or especially when you're putting together the findings and putting the recommendations, where you're trying to pattern match. You're trying to say based on what these people told me. How do I feel my clients should react based on patterns that I have seen in this industry before? And or is this a whole new pattern and I need to alert them to that? And, and the only way you can do that is if you've spent time in it. You know, it, it's, it's the same as like hosting a show. Like you've had lots of guests on the show. At, at some point, you'll notice the guest is following a certain pattern and therefore you might ask a question that kind of moves thing in a certain direction. You know, I, I, yeah. you know, I might've done that too during the interview, right? <laughs> and so like, there's, we all pattern match, but we pattern match from this wealth of context. And, and what happens sometimes is we forget that. And, and, and I think that's what lets you make those tough business decisions, not just from research, but from anything. Uh, and I, and it's kind of a side note, but I, I feel like one of the things that's really lacking kind of in the world today, when it comes to marketing and positioning and messaging from almost anyone is this inability to say what you don't do. Um, and and I, I know that's not on the subject of market research specifically, but it's something that comes out of the research that we see a lot, is that people don't trust content. They don't trust content of any kind. And I know that's a little odd to say, well, we're producing a piece of content here, you and I, right? But like mm-hmm. they, 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 their initial reaction to content is distrust. And so the organization that can make it clear that this is what I don't do up front and, and can message that is, you know, if you took a weighting and you said, is it, you get five points for one thing and, and, you know, one point for another, every time you're clear about what you don't do and who you don't serve, you get like five positive points from the person looking at your site. Um, and then every time you just say, and we do this thing and we do this thing and we do this thing, you kind of get a negative one because at some point they don't trust you anymore. And uh, or they're not sure if they can. And so that's that's something that comes through in a lot of the, the research we do when up around like messaging and content is this degree of authenticity and clarity about the boundaries on your own business that, um, frankly, many organizations are struggling with. And, and they're struggling with probably even more so in the last year and a half, because when things get troublesome and the economy you know, goes into a tailspin, it's very tempting to start telling people you do everything. And what you actually need then is the opposite. You need like hyper-focused clarity. So people who have limited budget and are risk averse into working with new people can just from what you're communicating, recognize I'm the kind of person you deal with because I'm not one of these other kinds of people. Absolutely. Because then you really have your, let's say, niche focus and uh, you're very good at that. 
Yeah. Well, it, yeah. And I, and I think to my point, the way you define it these days more effectively is not by telling people this is our niche, but by telling people these aren't our niches. Uh, and, and it's a, it's a very different way of communicating. And, and if, if folks listening are like, that's kind of interesting, I'd say the next time you even make a consumer purchase, um, do you go look at the negative reviews first or the positive reviews? What, what do you look at first when it's significant? Right. I mean, you, you, you're looking for somebody to say something bad about the car you're buying. It's kind of sad in a way, right? You wish you could just go to like the Ford website or whatever car manufacturer, right? And just trust what we're saying. But, um, and I, and there's just, and to some extent, I feel like it's a pretty noble mission. Like it's not about being negative. It's about being noble by telling people what you don't do. You're being clear and you're forcing them to make a choice. And if they choose you after knowing that, um, it's a very powerful thing at that point. And it's very affirming. So I, I, um, it's something that we've always believed in our own marketing for, years now. Um, and it's something we try to coach people because it shows up a lot in the research. I agree on that because I was funny enough, I was just looking uh, half an hour ago, I was looking at uh, an, a company that has an app for special service. It's more in a B2C area, but I was looking as well actually at the negative reviews, the positive reviews and trying to cut through the noise and to actually find right. out, okay, what's the real strength Where is somebody maybe trying to create uh, annoyance just because either their competitor or to, or someone who actually doesn't uh, isn't able to use a product or is for whatever reason has buyer uh, what do you call um, buyer regret or any kind of thing like that and they actually buy remorse I mean who actually want to get the money back and they start complaining and so on. And that's why they put the negative reviews. But um, if you actually try to filter that out, and the same thing if you're trying to buy a company car or you're trying to uh, looking at airplanes and other kind of products, whether it's B2B or B2C items of any kind of price range, even hotels. Let's say you're looking for a hotel to uh, go on holiday or you're looking for a hotel to do your, uh, let's say, your uh, partner event where you're going to invite all your company partners and to get them uh, excited about the new products that you're going to launch so that they go back into their home countries and then actually sell the product to their existing uh, customer base and get new customers. Of course, you're looking at positive reviews, negative reviews, trying to find out is the place safe, is the area safe, and, and what is the real situation with this kind of product or service and what's just, let's say, uh, <laughs> fake stories just to the competition it's not that kind of, kind of easy for a buyer always to find out what's reality yeah exactly exactly hmm. yeah and and when you think of that um i remember as well reading about some of the things that you do and your company does and so on and um i remember reading about uh, that you have let's say strategies methods and approach as well to um, that actually helps companies to avoid breaking the bank with spending uh, money on budget on things that are not going to get them customers or not being successful. And in the contrast as well, how to help them become sustainable companies. How do you go about that to get that consistent revenue stream for them? Um, well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think, I think from a, um, you know, 
from a sustainable revenue standpoint, um, I, I it, this may not be exactly the answer you're looking for, but I, I feel like um, one of the things companies really struggle with is finding balance to begin with internally. Um, it's mm-hmm. one of the words I use around here a lot. You know, they kind of surge between, um, you know, evangelizing one product and then the next and kind of having, having one kind of highlight. And I, and, you know, I, from our standpoint, that is one of the things research can help with in terms of giving you that perspective that says, you know, this item in your portfolio is more powerful than you think it might be. Um, you know, this, this service offering that you have is more valuable than you think it might be or vice versa. Uh, because, there is a little bit of foundation bias that creeps into companies with stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they whatever um, product kind of led to their foundational story, they have a hard time getting away from. Um, there, there's even a lot of data behind this. There's a great book called Stall Points that I recommend to people all the time. And one of mm-hmm. the stories in the book is about if you look at most large companies, the founding team... I mean, the the team that's on the board or senior leadership will almost invariably have started their careers in kind of the foundational product for the company. To give that like a a concrete example, if you looked at Microsoft five to 10 years ago, all their vice presidents would have started their career at Microsoft working on Windows. And so, um, and, and this is pervasive through almost any organization you look at. And, and what happens there is that, there, there's an, there's a myopia again that sets in where you really struggle to be able to see a, a future that maybe doesn't involve that core product. You know, Microsoft just recently, you know, I, I think it's as of a couple of days from now, I think on August 2nd or August 3rd, it's publicly mm-hmm. available. You can now have windows as a service. You can just log in as, as kind of Joe consumer, Joe business and go, um, access a regular windows instance in the cloud. And for those that are more technically listening, I'm, I'm leaving aside the whole B2B side where you could host VDI images and you can access windows server images. I, I you know, not, not hmm. to geek out in front of your audience, but that's, <laughs> there's, there's plenty of access to windows that's been happening for a long time in the cloud, but I'm talking about more like in the traditional easy to access from a consumer um, standpoint. And, and this, that you know, I'm sure that took a lot of work on their side to break the mold of Windows was only shipped on a laptop, right? And and what you'll see happening is you probably see Mac users who maybe need to want to use a Windows application. Well, now they'll open up an instance of Windows via the cloud and just go ahead and run that on their Mac, and that might be good revenue for Microsoft. But my point there is, it's um, sustainability comes from from having a balanced product portfolio and and companies really struggle to do that it i mean and this goes back all the way to the boston consulting groups you know kind of two by two matrix of growth where they had like cash cows and stars and whatever you know this is a this is a thing organizations have struggled with for a long time and and i think that external perspective is what kind of breaks you free of some of that Yes, absolutely. And as, as you look as well, like with the example with Microsoft there, now so many uh, you can buy anywhere screens that actually don't have any big computing capability, no operating system. But it actually, the only thing what the, what the screen needs is a keyboard, a mouse, and it connects to the internet. And in the cloud, actually, 
Windows is sitting with Office and everything where you think, wow, so you don't need all these huge boxes and towers and desktops and so on. And yeah, and the same thing, even if you look, for instance, at a Raspberry Pi, which is an IoT device typically, that thing has capabilities that a normal PC uh, had didn't have even like uh, 10, 20 years ago. And it's it's just crazy when you look at what technology has developed. But on the other hand, technology is difficult often uh, for people actually who develop the technology and so on to actually get it sold, to get it to the right clients who actually say, hey, this is what exactly I need, what I wanted always, and I always couldn't find anything like that. Um, and the thing, of course, is how do you build that consistent revenue when you've done your market research so that things really build and it's not just that you say okay you have your little group they bought the product and that's it so there must be something after those somehow to scale yeah yeah exactly i mean i think um those are all those are all super spot on perspectives Hmm. yeah exactly so that's something maybe for a future conversation it was great having you here on the show, Sean. And if people want to connect with you, uh, get more insights, maybe even have a conversation about what you can help them with, with especially with B2B market research, how can they connect with you or find out more? Um, well, I'm not all that hard to find. If you go to CascadeInsights.com, that's, that's, you can find contact info for us and you can find contact info for me. Um, but to make it easy, just Sean, S-E-A-N, at CascadeInsights.com. That's the Perfect. best way to get hold of me. Awesome. Then we'll add this well to, to the description so that people uh, can click on the link and it's easier for them to find and connect. Okay, so, awesome. Yeah, it was great having you here. And yeah, we'll be surely talking in the future as well about similar topics. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Growth Zone with Christian Barge. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review or rating here on iTunes or on podchaser.com. If you found the content helpful, then share it on social media. 
I would like to invite you to follow our show so that you don't miss the upcoming interviews with leaders in the market. Simply visit the website follow.prmediareach.com. I will be adding the link also to the description of this episode so that you just need to click on that link. For those of you who are listening and signing up to follow the show, I have reserved a free copy of the ultimate guide on content marketing. This is the strategy that got me top corporate clients like McDonald's, Linde, Hewlett-Packard, Deutsche Bank, Volvo and many others. That strategy has been working for over 10 years. It also got me contacts with police, transport authorities, military and several universities and even leading research institutes. For sure, it also worked wonders as it got me many small, medium-sized entrepreneurs and enterprises as clients. And that even included international clients from all around the world. The link to sign up for our free broadcasting service and the guide is follow.prmediareach.com That will give you access to the most recent version of my ultimate guide on content marketing. You can follow me as well on Twitter by using the Twitter handle CAP Barge. That's spelled Charlie Alpha Papa Bravo Alpha Romeo Tango Sierra Charlie Hotel. Yes, that is CAP Barge. Charlie Alpha Papa Bravo Alpha Romeo Tango Sierra Charlie Hotel.